morning. Um, if you turn to page 1686 in your Pew Bible, we will read 2 Thessalonians 2 together. I'll give you a minute. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may, he may, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all, will be, and so that all, will, who, all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters loved by the Lord, because God shows you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his, his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Someone at the nine o'clock gathering said to me that they'd never heard a series on 2 Thessalonians before and they'd been here at the church for about uh, 40 years. Now, I suspect that uh, 2 Thessalonians 2 is probably the reason. Uh, that is, it is, a, you just heard it read, it's complicated, raises big ideas about you know, the man of lawlessness, the work of lawlessness, it's, uh, it's got a lot in there. My big disappointment as I stand up to speak to you today is that David Wright assured me he was going to give a kid's talk on the man of lawlessness, and he's completely failed in that task, I feel. <laughs> so uh, that's, <laughs> be it what it may, uh, that's what we're going to get into today. So um, there's an outline in the leaflet that should help you as we go along. Can I just uh, also encourage you, newsletter, wasn't a great hearing from Nick about what's been going on on campus and uh, this letter will just give you an update on some of the other details of what's going on there. Great for your prayers and uh, great for your encouragement as well. As we begin, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you're a God who speaks to us through your word. And we pray that you give us clarity on the times we live in 
uh, clarity about the return of the Lord Jesus and its implications, and therefore clarity about how we should be living as we serve you in this world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the magazine Christianity Today published an article last year with this title, 50 Countries Where It Is Hardest to Follow Jesus in 2022. Uh, an article that tried to measure the level of persecution in various countries around the world. Afghanistan last year was number one, and North Korea, normally number one, came in second. They interviewed a refugee from North Korea called Timothy Cho, and he said that the goal of the North Korean regime is, and I quote, to wipe out every Christian in the country. Uh, Nigeria had risen up two spots on the list to number seven. And again, they interviewed a, uh, a Nigerian man called Manga. He explained that his father had been beheaded by Boko Haram because he was a follower of Jesus. And he said this, uh, that is Manga, said, once you're a Christian in Nigeria, your life is always at stake. Once you're a Christian, your life is always at stake. Can I ask you, as we um, kick off today, how did you think, if you're a, you're a believer, how do you think you'd go if you were living in one of those two countries, or one of those three countries, Afghanistan or North Korea or Nigeria, and you're a follower of Jesus, and experiencing that sort of persecution? Would you stand firm? Do you have questions about how you'd survive? in that sort of context. The Thessalonians were under intense pressure and persecution. You can read about some of the background to that in Acts 17. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, we looked at this last week, this is what Paul says to them in the face of their persecution. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials that you're enduring. It's a wonderful statement. They were standing up under immense flack for following the Lord Jesus Christ. But here we get to chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, and there is a different threat. It's not the threat of overt persecution for following Jesus. It's an issue of false teaching that has come into the church and it threatens to destabilise and lead Christians away from following Christ. And what Paul does is he tries to help them go the distance. You pick it up in verse 15 of chapter 2. He says, So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm. Hold fast to the teachings that we passed on to you. So what's the false teaching? that uh, was going on in this young church. It, and it was a young church. Paul had only been there three or four weeks, even at the time of writing, probably only been in existence for a couple of years. So it wasn't surprising, given Paul had only been there a few weeks, that he hadn't covered off in great depth on every single core doctrinal matter that they needed to understand. And that obviously applied to the question of Jesus' second coming, his return to this world or, or the end times. Uh, the issue would have obviously been one that had been with them for a while 
uh, back in 1 Thessalonians, Jeff um, taught us about this earlier in the year, uh, it came up in this sort of guise in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, uh, verse 13. Paul says, Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed or ignorant about those who sleep in death, so that you do not, uh, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. See, Paul had taught them about the return of Jesus, but what had happened was some of the Christians had died before Jesus returned. And so the ones that were still alive were saying, do our friends who are Christians who died, have they missed out? Because they died before Jesus returned. And Paul says, no, there's no problem there at all. And he explains that in great detail. But then uh, we... We come to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and the problem seems to have morphed in their confusion about the return of Jesus. Uh, Verse 2 of chapter 2, some were asserting that the day of the Lord had already come. Some of these false teachers were saying Jesus had returned already. And Paul says in verse 3, don't let anyone deceive you. Now, let me say the same thing to you today. There are always people who come forward saying Jesus had returned in one form or another or it's a two-stage return. Don't let anyone deceive you. Don't don't be deceived. I'm going to put a slide up on the screen uh, just so you can have a look. Uh, This is a sort of a classic statement about the, the way the New Testament talks about the return of Jesus. We've got the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, um, We're living in the last days before the return of Jesus or the day of the Lord and that will usher in the age to come. Uh, When we were looking at this last week in chapter 1, you could see some of the public indicators that when Jesus returned, the whole world would know about it. This is what Paul had taught them. But there were false teachers saying, nah, Jesus has returned, at least in some form or other. And Paul says rubbish and what he does is he gives them this little checklist in verses 3 to 10 so they can know that Jesus has not returned look at it with me verse 3 the rebellion has has to occur first the man of lawlessness needs to be revealed or in verse 4 this man of lawlessness will exalt himself over God and proclaim himself to be God or in verse 6 It says the man of lawlessness will be held back for now by God. And verse 7, it talks about the power of lawlessness, which is at work now. In verse 8, the lawless one will be revealed and overthrown by Jesus. Verse 9, the lawless one operates in line with Satan's strategy, using displays of power through signs and wonders to, to serve the lie. See? Aren't you glad that Paul the Apostle completely cleared up all that confusion? (laughs) Uh, Who is this man of lawlessness? Uh, What is the secret power of lawlessness that he refers to? It's not that straightforward, is it? Look at verse 5 with me. Paul says to them, Don't you remember when I was with you, I used to teach you these things? Uh, Paul's referring back to the the things he taught them while he was present with them for a period of weeks. And obviously he'd referred back to these sort of matters. In other words, he's he's using shorthand to say, you know what I'm talking about here in verses 3 to 10, 
We had, we're at a disadvantage because we weren't there in Thessalonica in about 50 AD hearing Paul teach on these matters. Now, can I say, over the centuries, there have been lots of theories about who this man of lawlessness is. In fact, Christians in almost every era since the first century have attributed particular names to the man of lawlessness, identified him as a particular person. In the first couple of centuries, the Roman Empire or the Roman Emperor was often regarded as a man of lawlessness. Uh, Constantine got converted, uh, Roman Empire, uh, Emperor, and therefore they had to move on to other targets at that point. Uh, in the Middle Ages, it was people like the Pope or Muhammad. Uh, more recently, the man of lawlessness has been identified as Napoleon, Stalin, Hitler, Mussolini. Uh, various uh, US presidents have been nominated for the, uh, the title. And more lately, uh, Vladimir Putin, for obvious reasons. Now, I'm not saying forget about it, but do hear me saying we ought to have a level of humility on this issue because we come from a long line of believers who've gotten it consistently wrong for a long period of time uh, in terms of their interpretation. Can I just say, now's a good point for me to pause and draw your attention to the deep dive night that's coming up on October the 19th. Uh, so Mike Rowe, who's really a, a fine scholar, is going to help us as we gather together on the 19th to think about the day of the Lord. And I want to say that I know Mike, and I'm sure he will be delighted to answer any question you might have about the man of lawlessness should you turn up on that, that night. In fact, I'd be stirring up all your questions to ask Mike about the issue. Okay, now I don't... It would be a great night to explore some of these things further. Now, let me say, while some of the details here I don't think are clear, the main message of this chapter is crystal clear. Okay? Absolutely crystal clear. Paul is saying the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus, has not happened. And you pick that up even as you go through 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. They're going to be very public, this, this is not something that will happen in a corner or happen secretly. When it happens, the whole earth, everyone on planet earth will know all about it. Okay, Very, very public. What I'd like to do is to now turn our attention uh, to thinking through why this false teaching about the day of the Lord, why it's so dangerous um, why is he spending so much time on it? I mean, I get why you'd make a big fuss about the death of Jesus for sin. So if you don't believe in the death of Jesus for sin, how can you be forgiven and have a right relationship with God? Get that wrong, you've made a complete muck-up of things. I get why you'd make a big deal about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Because if he's not been raised from the dead, you won't be raised from the dead. And you have no hope for the future. Right. This is pretty important stuff, isn't it? So why is this issue of getting the details right about the return of the Lord Jesus, why is it such a big deal? You see, Paul seems to think it is a big deal, doesn't he? Look at verse 2. He says, Don't become easily unsettled or alarmed 
or in verse 3, don't let anyone deceive you. Effectively saying, don't get conned. Uh, you, you like me, you hear about all the millions of dollars that Australians get swindled out on internet fraud. It's a huge thing. Paul is saying here, the return of Jesus is so much more important. Don't get conned because salvation is at stake. Verse 10, he says, people perish or they're judged because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. Or in verse 12, all will be condemned who have not believed the truth. So you dismiss uh, Jesus' return to this world the last day and you dismiss the right judgment of God. You dismiss the return of Jesus and the last day and the judgment of God. You reject the salvation that there is in Jesus. You dismiss the return of Jesus to this world and you adopt a form of lifestyle that suits you and has no accountability to the Lord of heaven and earth. That's what he says in verse 12. All be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. That's not what I expect him to write. Look at it with me again. He says... All will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in... What would you think would be written there? I would think the lie, the truth, the lie. But he contrasts the truth with wickedness. And it makes sense. Because false teaching at the end of the day will result in behaviour that dismisses God and dishonours God. The lie leads to wickedness. Now, false teaching on any uh, core doctrine is significant, but what I want to do for just a few moments is try and tease apart why I think false teaching on this issue of the day of the Lord or the return of Jesus is so dangerous. Let me focus for a moment on this Thessalonian church. It's not completely clear of the details of the false teaching that was going on with this church. It could have been that they were being taught that Jesus had returned just secretly somehow and we'd see it all rolled out. It's possible, and maybe this ties in with chapter 3, that that they expected Jesus to return imminently, you know, almost straight away, and that was affecting them, you know. And you picked it up particularly, I think, when you get to chapter 3. Whatever the case, it was unsettling. Uh, Why was it so unsettling? Remember back in um, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 4, Paul had commended them for their perseverance in the face of opposition, uh, in the face of persecution and trials. But remember, he also promised in verse 7 of chapter 1, For those of you who are being persecuted, there will be relief from your persecution when Jesus returns. Or in verse 8, he says, there will be justice when Jesus returns, even though you don't see it now. Verse 12, he says, you will share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you get the problem for this church, don't you? If Jesus has already returned, why are they still being persecuted? Why is there no justice? Why aren't they sharing 
in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe Paul's teaching was wrong. Maybe they'd done something wrong and been forgotten by God. You see why this dangerous teaching for them was so, uh, so undermining of their faith. But of course, knowing that there was a day that was still to come, a day of righteousness, a day of judgment, a day of glory, that helped them press on because they knew that they could do that with joy, serving the Lord Jesus while they waited for that day. That was their situation. What about today? How is this um, day of the Lord, how is it relevant for us as we think about our lives and what's going on? I want to paint a few different scenarios and just try and intersect with them ever so briefly to try and give some flesh to the problem of a false understanding of the return of Jesus. So the first one I want to talk about is, is unbelief. Uh, I'm aware every time we catch up on a Sunday, we always have people with us who wouldn't call themselves Christians, wouldn't say they're, they're followers or believe, maybe you're investigating, uncertain for all sorts of different reasons. If that's your situation, how does this wrong thinking about the day of the Lord, how does it affect you? I'm going to throw up uh, another diagram uh, it, you may not actually believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, uh, but you certainly don't believe in the return of Jesus to this world. Now, if that's your situation, then you won't help to what the Bible says about the judgment of God. Uh, you won't think you have an accountability to God. And when you're asked about the question of death and what happens after death, for most of us, the jury is out. Maybe an afterlife, maybe not. But if that's your view, then what you're in is the, what I've called the never-ending last days. That is, the, the time that we're in now is the time that matters. It's not coming to a conclusion. Now, if that's your world view, then all you've got left really is to invest in this world, uh, to think about what you have right now, because that's all there is. Now, that investment in this world, that can take different shape, uh, different expressions, some are more altruistic than others. But at the end of the day, you'll be seeking a more comfortable life uh, for you and for the people that you love. Now, can I say, if you're wrong and the day of the Lord that is promised here is going to happen, then your view of life is incredibly short-sighted and incredibly limited. Let me move on to a, uh, a different sort of issue. It's what I've called liberal theology, and I know I'm using um, a label here, but there are some who would call themselves Christians, but they would reject the authority of the Bible. Often they'd say that the Bible uh, contains the word of God, uh, but at the end of the day, this results in something that's very similar to unbelief, and in fact, the same, same diagram really applies. There's no sin, there's no judgment, there's no accountability to God, there is no day of the Lord. Morality, essentially it's what I decide is right for me. Um, often people who have a liberal theological perspective have a strong conscience and concern. Uh, they think there's a reason 
for being good, but that good is limited to this world. It's isolated to caring for people right now. You see, dismiss Jesus' return, no gospel, no salvation, no sin, no judgment, no accountability. What I want to move on to now is what I've, I've labelled an over-realised eschatology. And again, I know I'm using a, a label. Uh, eschatology is just talking about the last things or the end times. And this view of an over-realised eschatology is often associated with uh, Pentecostal theology. Now, don't worry, uh, I'm going to have a go at us in just a minute, all right? The, uh, the criticism will be fair and evenly distributed. But this over-realised eschatology, often it's associated with people who have a very high regard for the authority of God's word, but they're very concerned about the end times. So this, this diagram uh, that's on the, uh, the screen talks about the way in which uh, realised eschatology tries to bring things that will happen after the day of the Lord, that is the age to come, into our present existence. So this age is not only about forgiveness and peace with God through Christ, but there are promises that God will bless you now in other ways, with, uh, with good health or an abundance of physical blessings or finances. And sometimes it's even associated with an overconfidence about being able to defeat sin in your life. Now, uh, this sort of problem or this view of eschatology could well have been quite close to what was going on for that Thessalonian church, an expectation about the things of the future intersecting with the here and now. There are a couple of problems with this, this sort of perspective. One is it's unreal. Um, what do you do with sickness or poverty or persecution, this side of Jesus' return? Uh, is it because you don't have enough faith? Is it because you've done something wrong? Is it why do those things happen? You can see how undermining it can be. Second thing is, it tends to cause you to idolise the world because with an over-realised eschatology, your focus becomes on the here and now, um, the physical, the material benefits you can receive now. It actually makes too much of this creation rather than the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. It discounts the age to come and the difference that the return of Jesus will make. Okay, I, I said I'd be even-handed. What about evangelicals? That's, that's us, essentially. Um, and I'd just like to say, of course, we're wonderfully well-balanced, you know. Uh, just in case you're only lis listening to the the recording of this, I have my tongue firmly in my cheek. Okay, Let me throw up another diagram. Uh, this one, I think, represents what is the risk for us. That is, we have a conviction about the Bible, but we also know that we, we cannot determine the day when Jesus will return. So you go to a place like 2 Peter chapter 3, we don't know when the day of the Lord will happen. Now, what that can lead to is a vagueness or an indefiniteness about the return of the Lord Jesus. You sort of, because it's in the future somewhere, it is almost only half real. And so the danger is that we'll invest in building a kingdom on earth 
and often it's our own kingdom. And one day Jesus will return, but I don't know that it necessarily has the impact on our thinking and the urgency with which we live our lives or the decisions we make in the present because we know it definitely will occur. What I'm going to do for just a couple of minutes is talk about how we stand firm as we wait for the day of the Lord. That's what uh, Paul wanted these Thessalonians to do. He wants us to do it as well. First thing to say is it's, it's so important we hold on to sound teaching. Back in chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says, I, I used to teach you these things. Verse 10 He talks about people who perish because they refuse to love the truth. Uh, Verse 15, he says, hold fast to the teachings. And there's lots more about truth and teaching that you find in this chapter. Now, I know it's very easy for a preacher to say the answer to every question and every problem you face in life is read your Bible and pray. Uh Very easy uh, for that to be the case. Uh, But actually, it's true. Uh, over the years, uh, there have been a number of people I've known fairly well who stepped away from following the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of those have been friends. I don't know of anyone who stepped away from following the Lord Jesus Christ when they've been reading God's word regularly, praying and regularly meeting with God's people. Right, you want to stand firm, hold fast to the teaching. But I want, I want you to notice the specific teaching Paul uses to encourage the believers to stand firm. Look at verses 13 and 14. God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now what Paul says here often causes debate. Uh, Did you choose God or did God choose you? It's always the question to raise in a Bible study if things are getting too quiet. Okay. These, just let me remind you, these Thessalonians were suffering persecution. And what does Paul say to them? My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, God has chosen you. He has laid his hand upon you and he has secured you for all eternity. Rest in the promises of God. You will share in the glory of Jesus when he returns because God, by his word, has guaranteed it. Isn't that a wonderful assurance? And that's why it's here, to assure followers of the Lord Jesus of their secure place in the family of God. Second thing I want to comment on is living in between. That is, we live in between Jesus' resurrection and his return. Jesus said this will be a time of persecution and opposition. It's a time for living in a world uh, where our bodies are subject to sickness and decay 
and the struggles that come with that. That's the nature of this life. I remember going to a physio a while ago. I had this problem with my neck and I'd seen him, you know, every couple of weeks for about three months and we were making some progress and at the end of that time he said, well, I think it's time to stop these sessions. And I, I said, why? He said, I think this is about as far as we're going to get, you know. And I thought, but I'm not, I'm not well yet, you know. See, we have this strange expectation that we won't suffer in this world or decline or go downhill. We live in that sort of world. But we also live in a world where we face opposition. And we may not, may not face the opposition of places like North Korea or Afghanistan or Nigeria. But I looked at another survey last year where thousands of people from across the globe were asked this question. If you're asked to identify the country in the world that is the most irreligious, which one would you put at the top of your list? Do you know the country they came up with is number one? Australia. Isn't that extraordinary? And I suspect it was a measure of secularism, a sort of discounting of God. We live in that sort of world, and that puts us under pressure. Uh, pressure to go quietly as believers. Pressure to just go comfortably in this world. Friends, we live in the in-between period. And the day of the Lord, it will happen. And so finally, can I say that the day of the Lord, do let it shape your priorities now. And we'll come back to this again next week in chapter 3. I'd love you to read chapters 2 and 3 together and see if you can see why this day of the Lord and the third chapter of 2 Thessalonians, why they connect together. But friends... We're not any time soon going to be running man of lawlessness seminars. Uh, we're not any time soon going to be trying to analyse the events that are happening in our world and nominate the day when Jesus is going to return. Uh, we're not going to be doing that. But friends, Jesus has not returned yet. But he will. He will. That is a promise. And when he comes, he will wipe away every tear. It will be a day of complete justice. And friends, it is a day that needs to have impact on the way in which you think about your life now. Because it's a day that gives us ultimate perspective on this world and our life in this world. And the question you just need to keep wrestling with, I need to keep wrestling with, is this question. At the end of the age, when the Lord Jesus returns to this world, what will endure? What will stand on that day? We need to keep asking those questions. And when you've got the answer to them, then that will shape what you invest your life in and what you see as being of the utmost importance. We'll come back to it next week. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that uh, it, it's not a straightforward chapter, and yet your word is always here uh, to shape our hearts and our minds, uh, to shape our, uh, and frame our thinking about what's important. And Father, we, we do ask that you keep doing that, encouraging us, strengthening us,
as we anticipate the day of the Lord. Help us to live with confidence in you and your promises, clarity about what's important. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.